crowded all the alcoholic gals, country over, the world over. And I was told that, that uh, this gal was pretty special, and after a short visit with her, I believe it's true. She was uh, born in Alabama. She's lived in many, many places. Uh, entered AA in Washington, D.C. From there, she went to Germany, where she started, I think, the first AA group in Germany. When the words went out, the first one said she was from Georgia. The second one said she was from Kansas City, Missouri. But she actually, this is the low band, she's from Kansas City, Missouri. Found that out. Her husband is a colonel in the Air Force. That's the reason for most of this traveling. However, before, I assume before you were married, she was a member of Phil Follies, and I'm sure that kept her hopping about. <laughs> that was a pun, and I didn't intend it for a pun. <laughs> I believe that Alan met her in Emporia. Was that by? They uh, have a, a meeting trinity that is quite new, and she presented a challenge to him. It seems that she had been in Amarillo with Earl Carroll Vanities, I believe, uh, during the Dustal era, about 36. And I don't need to tell you that she was not very happy with the weather, and I don't blame her. But Alan promised her. Oh, we'll have lovely weather. We don't have those bad dust storms. All that, you know, that line and everything. So uh, she came, and you know, I believe Alan's been living right because, as you all know, we're having our own usual wonderful West Texas autumn weather. So it is with a great deal of pleasure that I give you Emily H. <laughs> and delighted with the weather, and I'd like to thank him for it. I'd also uh, like to thank him and the top Texas group for giving me the privilege of sharing this wonderful weekend with you. It um, is a real treat to me because of the, the reasons uh, which we all feel uh, that it's so wonderful to be together, the fact that I, I love conventions, and the fact that I really and truly feel it a great honor to be invited to speak to you. There's another reason of my own, and that is that I have been hearing about the Top of Texas Roundup uh, for about as long as I have been aware of AA conventions, and it has always been a hope of mine that I would someday have the opportunity to attend one of them. Now, can you Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Better? <laughs> Thank you. If you think that is, uh, is just blind, that uh, I have long been impressed with the stories that I have
Perhaps you have noticed from time to time in the grapevine, uh, in the calendar of events, that every September in Wiesbaden, Germany, they hold the European Roundup. And if you think that I built the idea from you, you are correct. <laughs> Perhaps uh, I should tell you how it all began. About six and a half years ago, I went to Germany to join my husband, who was stationed there with our Air Force. And I was appalled to find that there was no AA available on the continent. Now, I had enjoyed my AA sobriety for over six years in Washington, D.C., but I felt secure there, and I now felt as though I was some kind of a fledgling being thrown from the net. Well, someone once asked me what I would do if I ever went anywhere where there was no AA group. I said then, and I still say, why, I would fill myself one. But this turned out to be a little bit more difficult than I had anticipated. Now, there are, there are well, hundreds of thousands of Americans either in the military service or connected uh, with the service who were uh, over there. And I knew that among that many Americans anywhere, there were bound to be a certain number of AAs. But try and find them. They were scattered all over the place, and nobody seemed to know where anybody else was. And general services had the I was only uh, able to get the most meager uh, of information. They gave me uh, a list of names and addresses of people who were there or had been there. But um, these were all ACO addresses. Well, I wrote hundreds of letters, but I had very few replies. Now, you, you have a man's name, Joe Smith, ACO 615. So where is ACO 615? That's classified information. <laughs> well, the rest of uh, my husband's court martial, uh, I had him get me a list of the locations of the different uh, ACOs. So then you look at your list and you see that ACO 615 is in our shopping place. So where is that shopping place? <laughs> you tell me to find it on the map, you find it on the map. <laughs> there were about 5,000 little towns the size of our shopping with equally as atrocious names. Uh, communication is over there, it's rather difficult. You know, you don't just pick up the telephone and make a long distance call. It, it, it's just too complicated to even talk about. But after a while, and a lot of trials and tribulations, uh, with which I will not burden you, I managed to locate four ex-members of AA right there in Wiesbaden, each of whom were suffering from sin, 
at the time I made contact. So they were ready to go. And we picked up a little group and got started. Well, as time went on, I, I began to, to get in touch with other people. There were a couple of boys down in Munich who were trying to get a group going. Uh, there were some uh, Canadian uh, soldiers over in the uh, English zone who were doing pretty well. And there were some Americans in a, in a little town over in France who, who were getting a group started. Of course, uh, the Paris group was always there, but that's... Uh, that's quite a, quite a distance away. There were three members of AA in Heidelberg, but for some reason I, I couldn't seem to get them to get together. So we were progressing, but very slowly. We couldn't quite seem to get off the ground. And one difficulty which we had was that we had such limited means of letting people know uh, that AA was available. I ran the little legs off talking to doctors and to chaplains and to the uh, Air Force um, Armed Forces radio, but you know uh, the military is not uh, too much interested. They prefer to um, keep the position that there is no uh, alcoholic problem in the armed forces. Of course, we all know that. <laughs> but that is the official position. No. <laughs> um, the only uh, newspaper uh, published in English was the Star of Strike, which is military sponsored, and they uh, did not use one ad, so we couldn't advertise. Now, um, I couldn't much blame the newspaper because, you know, a newspaper is just that. It is for news. And unless something is happening, you can't expect uh, a newspaper to, to print about it. It has to have news. So I, I went around for days sort of muttering to myself, now what should we make happen that would be news? Something's got to happen. Uh, I thought we had, I thought I had it made uh, when I was invited over to Frankfurt to a, uh, address a large gathering of army chaplains. Uh, that seemed uh, newsworthy because it was the first time it ever happened that a member of Alcoholics Anonymous addressed a, uh, a meeting of chaplains. And I wrote the story, and the chief chaplain of uh, the Senate Stars and Strikes, and the next day, uh, armistice was declared in Korea, and everything was pushed uh, out of the newspaper, except that. So uh, uh, around and round I went again. What can we make happen? Finally, one night at a meeting, I began to get an idea. And I said to the boys, I said, I tell you what let's do. Let's have a convention. They looked at me like they thought I was crazy. I said, no kidding. Let's have a convention and let's invite everybody in Europe. <laughs> and let's send uh let's send a Nobel lots of AA. Around. Let's round them up and we will call it the European Roundup. 
We'll send notice to all the papers that, that we've invited people from France and from England and from Holland and from Italy and everywhere. And they, looked, they, they just thought I had slipped my lid. They said, do you think anybody will come? I said, so we'll expect them. That's all we tell the papers. <laughs> so sure enough, we beat the bushes. We beat the bushes and we got some good publicity, stars and strikes and good stories and overseas weekly topic and, and we had a lot of good publicity. And did you know that 33 people showed up? <laughs> and that was really when AA got going over there. This whole idea had been uh, uh, just something to get us some notice in the newspaper. But the roundup itself became the important thing because a lot of enthusiasm was generated. And people did come. The boys came from Munich uh, on, uh, on a Wurzburg. And the three people from Heidelberg finally got together. <laughs> <laughs> and we had people who had to ride all day and all night to get there. And it was truly wonderful. And just this last month, they had the sixth annual European Roundup right there in Wiesbaden. And you know how gratifying that must be to me. And even more so is this fact. I don't believe that AA will ever leave Germany, even if and when the Americans pull out, because gradually it is beginning to get to the German people. Of course, the language barrier is a great obstacle, but they're beginning to get it. There are a few Germans coming into the booth there, and there are booths all over now. And our second roundup, the first German member talked to us, and believe me, that is something I shall never forget. The uh, shadows and flames on that man's face told of his dreadful suffering he had endured. Because besides the pain of alcoholism, with which we are all so personally familiar, also he had spent some time in a concentration camp because he shut off his mouth too loud when he was in his cup and said things that Mr. Pitler wouldn't like. He was a sensitive, brilliant man, but his, he spoke English in a very halting way. He had to grow for the English word. And his ideas and emotions were coming so much faster than he could find words to express that he couldn't quite get it all said. But you know, we got the message. We got the message. There was a, a communication almost without words. 
his word would give us the key and then we would feel the rest. It was an electrifying experience. And as I sat there and watched his tragic face and heard his heartbreaking story, I had cold chills all over my body. And there was one thought that affected me. I kept thinking, God is in this room. And I shall never forget how he told us that after the German doctors had pronounced him as a hopelessly incurable alcoholic, which has a terrible connotation in German, that with all of despair, he had faced his dreadful destiny. And then, in some way, he had found his way to the American group of AA there in Munich. And he said to us, when I entered that room, I knew that I was with my friend. I knew that I was with my friend. And that's what I'm feeling now. Truly, isn't that the real AA message? You are with your friends. And what a wonderful thing that is to know. Because there was a time when I needed those friends so desperately. I still do. But there was a time when I was so dreadfully, dreadfully, Lonely. And I think loneliness is an awful thing to feel, a frightening thing to feel, because it means that we feel that we are rejected. Now, frankly, I don't know why I carried this burden of rejection around with me for so many years. I don't understand it at all. Because certainly, my childhood, to all appearances, was about uh, as normal as you would want it. I had a, a good home, I had a fine father, a wonderful mother, and a dear older brother, and we all loved each other very much. I don't know, perhaps there was too much love there in my home, so that when I did stick my head out into the world and uh, did not find the same approval and enthusiasm for me there as I had found at home, I was disappointed. I don't know. I have found out a great many things about myself during the last 13 years, but there are still many things that are a mystery to me. I don't even know why I started drinking. It just seemed to be the thing to do. Perhaps I was caught up into the fever of the jazz age. That was during probation 
It was the time of Bob Hare, Chip Flack, Scott Fitzgerald, and Dixieland Jazz. And I bought the whole thing. I must admit that I was a flapper. I didn't know anything at all about whiskey, what it was supposed to do for you or what it did to you. Uh, I had never heard uh, discussions about drinking. Before Prohibition, I, I never saw any drinking anywhere. I never heard anybody talk about it except in whispers. And frankly, the only thing I knew about whiskey was that uh, it makes you drunk. So I thought that's what it was for. Heaven knows I didn't drink it for the taste. I don't know what it was you were drinking during those days, but that cool whiskey couldn't even be classified as a beverage. <laughs> I would say uh, that it was a very powerful, anesthetic, and emetic. <laughs> Taken orally. It took a lot of fortitude to get it down. And if you could keep it down, you were a superman. And you know, people didn't say, let's get together Saturday night and have some drinks. They said, let's get together Saturday night and get drunk. <laughs> and so when we drank it, we drank it with a purpose. <coughs> we got falling down, growing up, passing out drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was the deal, you know? That was it. Well, by the time I got to the big time and uh, was able to uh, drink some fairly decent whiskey, it, it was too late then. The pattern uh, was already set. Frankly, uh, I wonder. I always had uh, a lack of horror. I had the physical allergy, I believe, from the very beginning. And with this physical allergy to alcohol and the emotional imbalance, which I obviously had, I have no doubt that the result would have been the same no matter what its beginning. Now while I was still at a tender age, I went to New York and I went on the stage. Now I never made any marked success in the theater, although I did play Amarillo. <laughs> But uh, I had a lot of fun. I, most of the time, I was a chorus girl. I was a dancer in some good shows. I met a lot of people. I went a lot of places. I drank a lot of booze, and I had a lot of fun. I also had a lot of terrible hangovers. I suffered horribly from hangovers. But you know, I didn't, I, I didn't blame it on the liquor. I just thought I had a weak stomach. <laughs> I am sure 
that my drinking cost me a great deal in opportunity, but I, I didn't realize it. I just thought, uh, it, I just had bad luck. It never, uh, it never occurred to me that the, that the liquor was either uh, necessary or no that it was a menace to me. It was just part of my normal way of living. <laughs> Everything I did, every activity I had socially involved drinking. Now, I made a marriage during that time. Uh, it was an ill-fated marriage. Uh, as I heard each March age last Sunday, uh, my husband, too, had an allergy, an allergy for work. So, after a year, although I still felt that I loved him very much, I divorced him. And I loved him a long time after I divorced him. Also, I thought. At least every time I didn't have anybody else or anything else to cry about, I cried about him. <laughs> I was always crying about something. <laughs> if I didn't have anything to cry about, I'd think of something. <laughs> I think perhaps what I was really crying about was this moment. I thought I was lonely for someone. I thought it was someone I needed. Something outside of me that I needed. Something that somebody else could do something about. And I know now that that feeling of isolation came from inside. That it could be cured only from the inside. And I felt that that was my real trouble, that I needed someone. After 12 years, after I divorced this man, I found that someone. I was pretty lucky. I found a truly wonderful man. He was handsome and kind and brave and wise and we loved each other very much and we got married. Now I had everything which any normal woman <coughs> could want to be happy. But of course our life is normal so I wasn't happy. And it, it was then that my drinking really became bad. You know, I think that the active alcoholic always feels that there's some circumstance which is causing the drinking. Nearly always he drinks because there's something that he wants that he hasn't got. Or there's something that he's got that he doesn't want. <laughs> you know, it wasn't until I had everything the 
been my reason for drinking that I went completely out of control. And that just doesn't make sense. I was really, I was hard put to it to find alibis for my drinking and for an alcoholic, that's saying a lot. <laughs> I, I tried all the tricks that you tried. I tried all the little subterfuges with which we are so familiar. I tried to surround myself with people and circumstances which made drinking the normal thing to do so that I could sort of camouflage my own drinking. I tried drinking only certain things at only certain times. Only I switched from bourbon to scotch, from scotch to brandy, from brandy to beer, from beer to sherry. I used that sherry for quite a while. Uh, particularly during the daytime, and if I was someplace and somebody would say, Emily, uh, would you like to have a drink? I'd say, oh, well, that's a little glass of sherry. <laughs> no, that seems so sort of ladylike and fun. <laughs> <laughs> then I'd just need to drink the whole bottle. <laughs> I found I could get just as drunk on sherry as anything else. Well, of course, my dear husband was becoming annoyed. And his annoyance increased and grew into alarm and desperation. And then, you know, the sun went out of it. And I blamed him for this. I told him that he was so narrow-minded that he made me feel guilty if I so much as wanted a glass of beer. And I did feel guilty. I think the truth of it was, I had drunk up all the good that there had ever been in booze for me. And I became very unhappy. And he became very unhappy. And neither one of us knew what the trouble was, and he blamed it on each other. And he wanted to talk to me about it. And this made me furious. I talk about anything else in the world, but don't talk about my drinking. And he wouldn't shut up. <laughs> He's a lawyer. And he went on and on and on and on until I was frantic. I wanted to kill him. And I know he wanted to kill me. And after a while, there wasn't very much communication between us. And then I began to know real loneliness. Really, truly, definitely loneliness. Then came those dreadful, dreadful babies for that desperate drinking and those long, long nights. It seemed they would never end, and when they did end, it just brought another dreadful day. And I can remember lying in my bed 
the hot tears rolling down my face. And in the next bed was my dearly beloved husband, my dearest, dearest friend. And now he was a stranger, an enemy alien. And I prayed, oh yes, I prayed. I prayed, dear God, don't let me wake up in the morning. I can't face another day. I'd wake up. Now, I believe that <coughs> yardsticks have little or no value in AA. I don't believe in measuring my experiences against yours to see which world is worse. I have no history of hospitals, jails, lost homes. I don't know what your history is. And I don't know if you suffered more than I or not. But I can tell you this. I suffered as much as I am willing to set. The time came when something was in me rose up in protest and said, I can endure no more. And the time came when I was no longer willing to accept what drinking meant to me. Now, of course, I didn't know what to do about it. I couldn't talk it over with my husband because uh, there had been all the discussion in that area that I wanted. So as I had done all my life, I took my trouble to my mother. And bless her dear soul, she understood me and she went out and she got me some help. She brought me the person who told me about AA. Now, I can't say that I approached AA with enthusiasm, but I did approach it with sincerity. <coughs> I had made up my mind that I was going to stop drinking one way or another. I wasn't going to live the way I had been living, and if I couldn't change it and live another way, then I wouldn't live at all. And my mind was made up. Now, I had been on the wagon, and I didn't like it. I thought there was no existence in the world that would be more dull more dreary than living without drinking. And I didn't like the idea at all. And I didn't like the prospect. But I was willing to accept it. I was willing to accept it because I was wi willing to exchange what I had for anything. Anything on earth or in heaven 
say that they uh, were free from the compulsion to drink. I thought they were liars. I heard people say that they were living contented, happy lives without the use of alcohol, and I thought they were liars. And I even heard some people say that they were glad that they were alcoholics, and I knew they were liars. But just the same, I was ready. Now, I, this was, of course, a completely negative approach. I was staying sober because I was refraining from doing something which I felt might in some way be desirable to do. Now, I can't tell you exactly when or exactly why my attitude changed from this this completely uh, negative approach. It did change, and I think that it was the people, you people, in AA, who brought out the change. I was so fortunate that there were a great many women in AA in Washington, they were attractive women, nice women, and you know, I didn't think I was a nice person, because I didn't think that a nice woman would do the things that I had done. But here these lovely women told me that they had done these things. And yet, they had regained their self-respect and the respect of everyone who knew them. And that was what I wanted. I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be, to be one of them. To have them accept me as one of them. I know I became hungry for my own personal dignity. And that has become a very valuable thing to me, to have my own personal dignity. And so, I began to experience these things which I had heard them talk about. Not only the escape from the horrible hangovers and the feeling of guilt, and the, the, the turmoil in my home, but to experience the, the positive benefits of sobriety, I began to look at the world a little differently. I began, began to understand that people were a lot more friendly than I thought they were. That people liked me for myself. And that was a wonderful thing to feel. Now I began to feel, not that I was refraining from doing something, but that I was doing something because I wanted to. I was staying sober because I wanted to be sober. I learned 
that I preferred being sober than being drunk. And there couldn't be any in between for me. There could be no compromise. And I found that I liked being sober. And coming to meetings and doing AA work was something I enjoyed doing. And now, my whole attitude began to change. Now, I'm not saying that everything was easy sailing. I, I, I had my bad times. I had my bad moments. I, I had the same uh, troubles we all know. I fought with my own emotions. But then I began to learn to control my own emotions. I began to learn to recognize the danger signals and to put a name to them. I began to understand that when a certain feeling possessed me, which disturbed me, that it was caused by resentment. And I began to learn how to handle resentment. I'll tell you a little trick I learned. My teacher is kind of cute, and for me it works. I still get resentment. I think that I will so long as I live. But you know, if I get a resentment that starts eating on me, the first thing, of course, I have to do is to recognize it for what it is. To put that label on it and recognize it as a resentment. And once I have a hold of it, once I put the name on it, now I have a hold of it. And I have learned this. If I have one resentment, all I have to do is say, now wait a minute. I must have two more. What other resentments do I have? And I have never failed to find two more. Two more resentments. So that makes three. And when I have three resentments, there's something wrong with me, not with the world. And that is what AA has taught me how to do, how to handle my own emotions, to help me to stay on an even keel. Now, I can tell you this, and I am not a liar. I consider myself as a person who is free of the compulsion to drink. Now that doesn't mean that the thought never occurs to me. Wouldn't it be nice in, the, in certain circumstances? Wouldn't it be nice to, to have, have a drink? As long as I have an imagination. I'm sure that those thoughts will come to me. But I have convinced myself with the help of AA, that drinking for me is not a pleasurable experience. And to drink. I tell you this, that I am living a contented life without the use of alcohol. And I am happier than I have ever been in my whole life. Now this thing of saying, I'm glad I'm an alcoholic, uh, is rather 
called faith to live. Certainly, I don't go around anymore saying, why does this have to happen to me? In the first place, why shouldn't it happen to me? Who am I? Why, the whole human enterprise is of encountering difficulties and finding a way to overcome them. So because I have had this difficulty in my life, I certainly do not consider it as a curse. I think that in many ways I am fortunate that I am an alcoholic because it so happens that the things which keep me sober keep me happy. The way of thinking and the way of living which I was forced learned because I'm an alcoholic have made me a happy woman. <coughs> and this has brought me peace of mind and it has brought me a grateful heart. I am grateful, oh so grateful to those who went before me to those who showed me the way. I am grateful to a loving God who helps me every day. And I am so grateful to you for keeping my interest in AA alive, for keeping me alive. And so I say to you, May God guide you and guard you in all ways 